on November 9th, um, 2017. I attended the LifeWay Women's Forum in Nashville, Tennessee, which is um, a three-day conference. It's, it's to equip women's ministry leaders from all over the country. And while I was there, I attended a small breakout session. And it was on Thursday afternoon at 4 p.m. And I chose the session not for the subject matter, but for the teacher. Her name is Kelly Minter. And I had recently led one of her Bible studies in my home, and a group of friends and I um, liked her, and so I wanted to meet her. And um, the title of her session was How to Abide in Christ. Now, I will tell you the truth that when I heard the title of her session, I was not excited about it because it sounded very boring. Um, and for the record, I was and currently am pro-abiding. It's not that I didn't want to hear about it, but it's just that for one, I already felt like I had the abiding thing down. And for two, I had traveled three hours and paid for this whole conference plus the cost of a hotel, and I just felt like I reserved the right to be picky about um, what kind of out breakout sessions that I went to. And so um, my, my desire to meet Kelly Mentor overrode my better judgment, I thought, at the time. And so I went to those sessions with the sole intention of um, meeting her afterwards. And it was a meeting that went so incredibly awkwardly at the end. Um, I'm going to tell you about it in the third session so you come back because it was actually one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Um, so I sat down with her that day uh, during her session with my open notes as she began to teach. And what happened in that one-hour session, I can only describe as God coming down and grabbing me by the throat in the most loving way, as God can do. Um, as soon as she opened her mouth, I knew that God had me in that classroom for something much bigger than a celebrity photo op. Every word felt like it was bolded and highlighted and enlarged just for me. And um, I scribbled notes so quickly I couldn't even keep up with what she was saying. And the very last thing that I have written in my notes from that session is this. The women of your church need a leader who is abiding, remaining, and dwelling in Jesus. And Jesus is abiding, remaining, and dwelling in her. Yes, indeed, God had spoken so clearly to me that day that the women of New Life Church um, needed a women's ministry leader who was actively abiding in the vine. And so I went home and I started reading through John 15 over and over and over again. And then I started reading through Bible commentaries and then I started looking through Bible study helps and then I bought some books on the subject. And then I became very intrigued with all things grapevines, and so for fun, I started looking up YouTube videos about proper pruning techniques, and, and that became a fun pastime for me. God had tattooed the word abide on my heart, and I couldn't get away from it. I stopped short of actually getting the word tattooed on my wrist. Um, John, my husband, who just walked in, one night, during date night, he and I went to a tattoo parlor, and we sat in the parking lot, and he's like, come on, just do it, just do it. And um, he ended up actually getting a tattoo that, well, not that night, but soon after. But he had, he had asked me no less than 10 times in 2018, when are you going to get that abide tattoo? When are you going to get that abide? Well, it seemed like a really huge commitment to me because I wasn't really sure I wanted a lifetime commitment with abide at the time. So instead, I got this bracelet, and I got the word abide on my bracelet, and I wore it every day the year of 2018. I had no idea what God wanted me to do with this message because I had already decided that for the 2018 women's retreat that I was going to bring in an outside speaker. That is until God spoke to my heart and he said, no, you will be the speaker and the message is abide. And then I said, no, 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 <laughs> because I wanted to be the MC and I was the planner person and Aisha and I would do like the MC thing together and, you know, we were salt and pepper and I was really good at being salt and so I didn't really want to be also a speaker person. And so, um, so I, 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 went to, um, 
I went to Phil Yeoman, who is one of our pastors here, and, and I wanted to seek his input on the matter. And I said, Phil, you know, for our next retreat, I intended on bringing an outside speaker, <laughs> um, but now I'm feeling like maybe God wants me to speak, but probably not. Like, what do you think about that? And he, you know, if you know Phil, he doesn't mince words at all. And he said, well, if God told you to do it, then you're the speaker. <laughs> As only Phil can say, well, if God told you to do it, you're the speaker. And so I was like, well, hmm, no thank you. And so then I didn't like that answer at all. I, you know how like when you put vegetables in front of a kid and, and they go, no thank you, and you're thinking, I did not ask you a question. <laughs> like this was not a question, eat your vegetables. Um, that's kind of how I felt like what was happening between me and God. And so um, I went over Phil's head and I talked to Tim. And, um, and so Tim, you know, he's just a little more diplomatic and, and he wants to give me every benefit of the doubt and talk me through the pros and cons. And, and he said, yeah, you know what, Sandy, there is some value in bringing an outside speaker. But I think, I think the women need to hear you speak. And I was like, dang it. <laughs> and so as I delivered this three-part teaching that weekend at the retreat, it became abundantly clear that it was exactly what our women needed to hear. And when I finished and reported back to Tim how it went, we decided at that point, well, we should offer it then to whoever wants to hear it. And so here we are. Now, I know some of you are hearing it for the first time, and some of you came back for a second helping, which is awesome. Um, but I'm going to tell you exactly what I told the women at that retreat, and it is this. God knew that you were going to be here. And he spent an entire year preparing me to deliver this message for you right now. It is without a shadow of a doubt that this message has been 100% for me and it is 100% for you if you're here. The people in your life need you to be abiding in Christ. The people in your life need a wife or a husband, a mom or a dad, a sister, a brother, a friend, a co-worker, a daughter, a son, who is abiding in Jesus and Jesus abiding in them. So we are going to start by looking at John 15. And we are going to read John 15 so many times over the next three weeks. Hopefully you'll have portions of it memorized, but it will also be tattooed somewhere on your heart, maybe your wrist. John 15, beginning at verse 1. And I'm reading, this is out of the NASB. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Don't you just love Jesus? He starts right off with the pruning. It's like the hardest, most painful part of this entire passage is the pruning. And so, you know what? I want to be like Jesus. And so I'm going to also start with the pruning, the hardest, most painful part. This is going to be a blast, I promise. Okay. Um, don't worry, Jesus didn't just talk about pruning, and neither will we. So just so you know where we're headed the next uh, couple weeks, Tonight, we talk about the pruning. Next week, we're going to talk about abiding. And in week three, we're going to talk about fruit bearing. Before we start, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word, and thank you for ears to hear and hearts to understand. Thank you for open minds and open spirits to receive what you have for us today, Lord. God, we believe that your word is life, and we believe that you have given us this word for this day. And we trust you to do with it what you would do with it. Lord, we know that everybody comes in here with different circumstances, and we know everybody comes in here with different needs, and everyone is in a different place, and Lord, you know all about it. And I just I just entrust these people to you tonight that your word would go into the depths of their heart and it would do the work that you intended to do, that it would not return to you void, that it would take root and become life 
in the people who are here and that they would hear something fresh and alive that they have never heard before and that they would hear you speak to their hearts in a way that they have never sensed you speaking before. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate what each person needs to see. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint my lips as I try to be obedient to what you have given me to say. And if there's anything dumb or errant, I pray that you put breaks on my, on my mouth so that I don't say the wrong thing. But Lord, I just trust you that for your grace to cover the whole message and to cover every single heart and, and ear to hear it the right way. In Jesus' name. Okay, so before we dive into John 15, I want to give you some context to this passage because um, I want to try to squeeze from it every single thing that we can. So the best way to do that when you're studying the word is you want to study it in context, right? And so we are going to do that. And in doing this, I'm going to show you what the Bible says, five reasons that you need this message straight from the context of this scripture. Five reasons you need this. And you have, in your notes, you see that all, everything that's going to be up on um, the screen is, will also be in your notes. So first, we're going to pan way out. John 15 is part of an entire gospel, duh, written by the gospel, written by the apostle John. And uh, the audience for this gospel was primarily Gentile believers and seeking unbelievers. And it was written in the year A.D. 50, somewhere between A.D. 50 and A.D. 85. Not A.D. 85, but A.D. 85. And John was one of Jesus' closest companions. He was one of the chosen 12, and he was in that inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And so he was present when all this stuff happened. And then he wrote it down himself. So this was a firsthand account of what Jesus had to say. That is the Gospel of John. Now, Jesus said and did many other things that are not recorded in the Gospel of John, and we know this. Um, well, some things are written in other Gospels, and they're just not in John. But John actually says that there are more things written in there that, that are not in his Gospel, that Jesus did more things that are not in his Gospel. He says this in John chapter 20, verse 30. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So he comes right out and says, Jesus did a whole lot of things I did not write down. Why did John choose to write the things that he did? He actually tells us in the very next verse. In verse 31, he says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So in other words, the purpose of everything written in John's gospel, including the analogy of the vine and the branches, which we're going to cover in great detail, is to show you that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So reason one that you need to hear this message, in case you were wondering, is in times of doubt, you will believe that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, the second reason is right there in that same verse. It says, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So reason two is that in times of death, you will have life. That's why you need to hear this. Now, the third reason, we're going to zoom out a little bit more. John 15 sits right in the middle of a longer conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And it begins in John chapter 13, and it goes all the way through to the end of John chapter 17. Okay, so that's the passage of scripture we're talking about. It took place um, in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm sorry, John chapter 17 ends in the Garden of Gethsemane right before Judas, Judas betrays him in John 18. <laughs> sorry. Um, so at this point in his ministry, Jesus is no longer teaching publicly. He has only chosen, um, he has chosen just the 12 to have his last meal with them together. And the Bible says in John 13, 1, it says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So this is him. Now he's gathered his people, his closest friends to him. 
and, and he, he proceeds to show them the full extent of his love. And that is when he bends down to wash the disciples' feet. And then he dismisses Judas, who then leaves to go to betray him. So beginning in John 14, he's now talking just to the remaining 11. And he knows in just a few short hours he's going to die. This is his final discourse, and he is talking to his closest friends. Now picture yourself if you knew in a few hours you were going to die. And you have, you have surrounded yourself with your closest people. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your friends. It might be a spouse if you're married. It might be your children if you have children. And you are trying to impart to them. You're trying to squeeze in the last, most important things you want them to know before you go away and die. And you're leaving them on this earth. Picture that. That's what's happening here. He is literally telling them the most important things they must know before he leaves. These are their final instructions, and these are some of the most vital and most tender words in the entire Bible. So that this conversation, chapters 14 through 17, they take place in the upper room, mostly, and then probably en route to the Garden of Gethsemane, because when he starts talking about grapevines, it's probable that he was walking past a vineyard when he started that conversation. So at the end of this portion of teaching, stick with me. I just want to give you context. Jesus prays for them, but right before he does that, he says this in John 16, He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So reason three that you need this message is so that in times of trouble, you will have peace. All right, now we're going to zoom in a little bit closer. Immediately after he finishes the analogy about the vine and the branches in John 15, which is what we're going to talk about, he warns them about persecution, and he gives you the fourth reason why you need this message. He says in John 16, 1, all of this I have told you so that you do not fall away. So reason four, in the time of persecution, you will not fall away. Fifth, and finally, let's do a close-up to just our particular passage where we find the final reason we need this message. Right in the middle of our passage about the, the vine and the branches, Jesus says this in John 15, 11. He says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And so reason five is that in times of sadness and discouragement and disillusionment that you will have joy. So while parts of this passage are very difficult to understand, you need this message so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, so that you'd have life, so that you'd have peace, so that you'd not fall away, and that his joy would be in you and your joy would be complete. I want all of those things, don't you? Yes, yes. Okay, so let's dive in. All right, we're going to look at the cast of characters. Who are we talking about in this passage? So let's look again at John 15, and we're going to read 1 through 5. <clears throat> I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Okay, first verse one, it says Jesus is the vine. So now when I hear vine, um, I think this. See my, my pretty vine that I bought today from the Hobby Lobby? It was 50% off, by the way. If you are in needing some home decor, Hobby Lobby is the place to go today. Okay, so I think this. I think long and skinny and weak. When Jesus says, I'm the vine, I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's decorative. <laughs> okay, um, but, but really, this isn't that. 
okay? When Jesus said, I am the vine, he is talking about the trunk of a plant that grows out of the ground, like that picture up there. Um, it usually sits about 36 to 42 inches tall, and at the top of the vine is a gnarl right there at the, before the branches come out. There's a gnarl right at the top, and the branches grow in either direction, and they're usually trained to go along a wire or a trellis. Okay, so when Jesus is saying vine, he's saying that. He's not saying this. All right, get it in your, in your mind what he is trying to say. Okay, second, the father is the vine dresser or the gardener, also in verse 1. Now, the vine dresser or the gardener, this is the keeper of the vineyard. This is either the owner of the vineyard or sometimes it's someone who's hired to come in and tend the vineyard. But here's what the most important thing you need to know about the, the vine dresser. His primary task was to coax from the plants the most pounds of grapes possible. That was his primary task. So everything the vine dresser does in a vineyard is for the sole purpose of helping those branches, not those branches, but the branches that were just up there produce fruit. Okay, verse 5 says, we are the branches. Again, the branches are the, the things that come out from the main vine, and, and the branches are the primary focus of the vine dresser's efforts because that's where all the fruit comes. So branches require constant care to be fruitful. Now, if, think about this, just a little side note, that as, as the disciples are hearing this analogy, they are not needing an explanation because vines were a very normal part of their life, okay? So the fact that, that Jesus said all of this, they knew immediately what he was saying. So I don't have a vine in my backyard, although I might soon because my husband has stated that he'd like to plant grapevines. <laughs> I'm like, ah, okay. Um, okay, uh, now we're going to talk about the five kinds of branches. We're still kind of laying a foundation here. Um, go back to John 15, beginning at verse 1 again. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So there are five kinds of branches that are identified in that passage. First is a branch in Christ that does not bear fruit. Next is a branch in Christ that bears fruit. Then there's a branch in Christ that bears even more fruit. Then there's a branch in Christ that bears much fruit. And finally, there's a branch not in Christ. So tonight we're going to talk about the first three. And then next week, we're going to talk about the remaining two. First, the branch in Christ that does not bear fruit. When he says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser, every branch in, in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. This verse tells me that it is possible to be in Christ and not bear fruit for a time or a season. What does the vine dresser or gardener do with these branches? Well, the NASB says that he, it uses the phrase, he takes away. And the NIV says he cuts off. And this is confusing because he then goes on to say, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And we're like, what? What does, you just said I got cut off. So <laughs> confused. And so there are several potential explanations to this, but here's the one that I'm leaning toward. The word translated takes away or cuts off, that is the Greek word, and it's, it's spelled A-I-R-E-I, -E and it is pronounced ire or 
<laughs> have you ever done, like, when you're doing Bible study and you, like, check to see the pronunciation of the Greek and you, like, listen to the man? On the computer, yes, it's awesome. He, the guy that I listened to said, I lay. <laughs> rolled his R's. Okay, it means to take away, to take up, or to lift up. Now, all my grapevine research came in handy because I learned something very, very, very valuable that helped me understand what this may mean. New branches, like this one, like my little skinny one. Let's pretend this is a new branch. So this, when, as they grow off of that main vine, they have a tendency to grow downward. And they have a tendency to end up on the ground. And on the ground, a couple things happen. One is they get coated in dust. And then when it rains, it turns to mud. And then the mud turns into mildew and mold and disease on that branch. The other thing that happens is that it can't get to the sun down there. So what the vine dresser will do is he will go around the vineyard and he will look for these branches. And he will not cut them off. That isn't what he does. He goes down and he lifts them up and he takes a bucket of water and he takes them and he cleans the individual leaves of that branch. And then he ties it up and tries to get it to bear fruit. So that actually makes sense than when he goes on to say, but you're already clean. That's why it says that. So where, where that all, always used to freak me out when it would say, if you're, not, if you're in Christ and not bearing fruit, he cuts you off. I'm like, whoa, that, is, that doesn't seem like it's a very good translation of that word because that is not, doesn't describe what an actual vine dresser would have done in that situation. So they wrap them up and they tie them around sticks or a trellis or, you know, some kind of fence, and it secures it there. And he does it for three reasons. The three reasons are, first, to let the air circulate underneath this branch, because when it's down there, it can't get any air. So when God does that to us, when he takes the vine and he props us up and lets the air circulate, I mean, you know, it sounds all nice. It's like, ooh, the Holy Spirit circulating under me. That's always fun. Um, he also does it to provide a maximum amount of sunshine, and that is always a good place to be too, so that, you know, God just, you know, puts us up there so that we can have the sun on us, S-O-N, sun. <laughs> it's just on us, and, and, and the light and the warmth of the sun can shine on us, and then we can bear fruit. But the third reason, which is not as a popular reason as those two first two were, is to allow full access for tending full access for tending. God wants full access to us and all our stuff. So he's going to tie us up. It, it might not feel very comfortable while he's doing that, but those are all good reasons. Okay, so we're going to look at a related parable in Luke 13. Luke 13, beginning at verse 5. This is Jesus talking. He says, But unless you repent, you will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should, we use it? Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. And that is the end of that parable. <laughs> There's like no explanation. It's just like a really weird little parable in there where Jesus just tells this story about this tree that isn't producing fruit, and, and they want to cut it down, and, and, the, and the guy says, no, wait, one more year. And then he's like, okay, just one more year, and then cut it down. What does that mean? Okay, before I tell you, we're going to come back to that in a second. I want to tell you just really quickly about grapevine growth stages because I learned so much about grapevines, and now you will too. Okay, the first grapevine growth stage is dormancy. That's a period, it's growth and development stops temporarily during the stage, and, and that is when the growers do most of the pruning. Then there's bud break, and that's the appearance of the first green leaves through the bud scales. 
and then there's flowering, self-explanatory. After a month or so of vegetative growth, the vine will develop tight bunches of tiny flowers, and then each one of those flowers has the potential to become a grape. And then fruit set, also self-explanatory. The now pollinated flowers drop their petite petals, and a tiny green sphere begins to emerge at the end of the stem. That would be the grape. Fifth is veraison, and that is a French verticultural term that means the onset of ripening. So that's when, um, during the ripening stage, the grapes change color, and um, they also become sweet. And then finally, the final stage is harvest, and grapes are only harvested when they are fully ripe. They cannot ripen outside of the vine. A lot of, a lot of um, fruits, vegetables, will continue to ripen after you pick them. Grapes will not. How you pick them is how they will be forever and ever until they rot and die. Okay. Now, according to what I've uh, learned about actual grapes, the gardener watches each branch very, very carefully. And if a branch does not produce any fruit during the growing season, and it's not blocking the sun to any other fruit-producing branches, he'll usually leave it alone. But then, if it still fails to produce fruit, he will cut it off completely in the annual pruning. And I have a picture of pruning. So you can see like there's branches that were before pruning and that's how much they cut back after pruning. So here's, here's what you need to know. Back to that Luke 13 passage that I want to draw together and the John 15 passage together. If you are in Christ and your life consistently bears no fruit, God will intervene. It appears as though from this scripture in Luke 13 that there is a window of time that God will work with you while you are in Christ. And he will wait for fruit because God is very, very patient with us. And I, I, I choose and I need us to read it as, as this is a story of grace where the world does not extend us grace. The world would, would say, cut it off. We're done with her. I'm so done with her. I'm so done with him. Jesus says, no, I'm, give it another year. Just give it another year. Give it, give it some more time. Give him some more time. Give her some more time. I know I can get some grapes out of this one. I know I can get some fruit out of that one. What might that look like? Well, it depends on why you're not producing fruit. So there are four main reasons why you are not producing fruit. First, you are not connected to the vine. This is an actual vine that is not connected, branch that's not connected to the vine. It's brittle, it's dead. This thing will never, ever bear fruit. Second, and we're going to talk more about, we're going to talk about this guy tomorrow. He can go here for now. Okay. Second, if you're a young branch, okay, do you know a perfectly healthy and well-growing grapevine will take three full years before it starts to produce fruit? So here's, here's a, an illustration. That's a grapevine in year one. Look in spring. It's just like a little teeny thing. And then summer, it's like, oh, yay. And then, oh, they cut it all back. Boo. Okay, and then year two, it's like, wow, look, it's got all kinds of fruit. They don't even, that fruit is like horrible. Like they don't eat that fruit. And then, oh, look, year two, winter pruning. Boo, look at that poor, <laughs> like this, the saddest end of year two ever. And then year three, look at summer. That is like a beautiful, lush grapevine. But then, you know, look at the pruning in the winter. So if you are a young branch, if you are year one, not technically year one, you know, length of time in the kingdom of God is different for everyone. But if you are a young branch, you may just need more time. And you know what? God is not going to do a thing to rush this process. You just need to sit. You just need to, this part right here, you just need to let Jesus feed you. You're all connected to the vine. The Father has secured you to the trellis, and you just need to sit and grow. You just, like, just let yourself have time. That's all that that is, okay? You don't need to be worried. He's not going to cut you off. You're, you're young. The third reason why you might not be producing fruit is disease or mites. 
The job of the gardener is to remove insects and moss and other parasites that affect the plant. If he doesn't, the disease can spread to the rest of the branches and eventually to the entire vineyard. So if you are a mature branch, okay, you are in Christ, you are a mature branch, you're still connected to the vine, and you are not producing any fruit, we have a whole different issue. Sin is probably the culprit. And God, in his love and mercy for you and for your fellow branches, will intervene quickly and efficiently, and it's usually in the form of discipline. I told you this was going to be fun. Isn't this fun? <laughs> Let's learn about discipline. Okay. Deuteronomy 8.5 says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Any good parent of a child or any good uh, child <laughs> knows that discipline is necessary and, and, and discipline means pain. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 4, says this. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten his word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, I am not going to sugarcoat this. Being disciplined by God is very uncomfortable. It is very hard. If you've ever been disciplined by God, you know what I mean. And honestly, this is no fun as a parent either. I will tell you that disciplining my kids is by far my least favorite task of parenting. Like, it, for me, disciplining my kids is worse than sleep deprivation or changing poopy diapers or cleaning up their messes. I hated and still to this day hate disciplining my kids. So when I do, I try to administer the most efficient punishment possible so that they know exactly what they've done and they know exactly why the discipline is happening, and they know exactly what they need to do to get out of it. God does not expect you to enjoy this part, just as you don't expect your child to enjoy it. He wants you to get out of it as soon as possible. He wants you to understand exactly why you are there and exactly what you need to do to get out of it. So what might God, God's discipline look like? First, it, it could look like a convicting thought or a rebuke. What is that? That is an intense feeling of guilt that you get when you know you've messed up. That thing that happens inside of you, your conscience bothering you, that is a, a swift rebuke from God. It might feel like emotional anxiety. It might feel like frustration. It might feel like distress. Um, I'm going to share with you a very vulnerable example um, in my, from my own life. But when, when my children were very young, one of my children threw incredibly violent temper tantrums. And um, sometimes these temper tantrums would last an hour or longer. And I read every parenting book I could. I um, talked to my other mom friends. I tried everything I knew to stop them. And nothing was working. And they went on for years. And most of these took place in our home. And, um, and so because I was home with my children, I was, I was the one who usually caught the brunt of them. And as a result of that very lengthy season in our lives, my resolve began to wear very, very thin. And um, rather than responding in love and patience over time, I started to respond in anger and frustration 
and sometimes a complete loss of control with this child. And then it kind of turned into where I was doing it with my other children, and then I would lose control of my husband, and I would be throwing my own temper tantrums. I'd be like, you want to see a temper tantrum? I'll show you a temper tantrum. And so while, while I never abused my child, and I, I, I pray that I never would have abused my child, for the first time, I started to be afraid that I could. And that was very scary for me. And one morning, I was praying and reading my Bible, and I heard the Lord speaking to me as clearly as I am speaking to you right now. Um, and, and this is what he said. He said, your anger and loss of control is sin. And if you continue down this path, Sandy, you will cause irreparable damage between you and your children. You will not be able, you will, you will hurt them so badly. You will never be able to repair this. Stop it. I have given you a spirit of self-control. Stop. And, and it arrested me. And I am happy and relieved to report to you that after that disciplining, that I, re I stopped. <laughs> I did. And my relationship with my children and my husband is healthy, I think, right? Yeah, right. He says yes. Okay, good. <laughs> he says yes right here in my notes. John says yes. Okay. And, and loving. And I have great relationships with my kids, even that one, <laughs> even the one that threw the temper tantrums. So if you sense that God is rebuking you, immediate obedience is the appropriate response to that. Okay, second. Second, did you see that? Second. <laughs> withholding or blocking success in favor, I'm sorry, withholding or blocking success or favor in your circumstances until you've repented. Another way he he disciplines us is by withholding something from us until we've stopped what we, we are doing. So if you're looking for open doors in your ministry or, or in your relationships or in your career and you keep hitting a wall, it may be the hand of God stopping you until you turn away from your sin. I'm trying not to make eye contact with anyone, yet still maintain eye, eye contact. So that's hard to do. Okay, this is especially true, you know, when you're engaging in open, flagrant sin and disregard for everything you know to be right, especially if you have rejected previous attempts of God trying to discipline you away from that behavior and get your attention. Because God takes long-term sin so very seriously. And he will take whatever measures necessary to rid you of that thing and to get you free. Of, think of it as the disease and the mites that are overtaking your branch. If he doesn't remove it from you, you will contaminate the rest of the body. You will I would have contaminated my family. I would have left a legacy of child abuse and maybe divorce. And who knows what that would have produced down the road. If, if God would not have intervened and said, stop it, and I would not have obeyed, it would have been terrible. I would have diseased, and it would have affected the church. It would have affected you because I would never be in this position. Big, big caveat with the discipline part, and I want to be so very careful how I address this because I know that many of, the, many of us, including myself, we have encountered devastatingly painful life experiences. And I know for a fact that not every devastatingly painful life experience is God disciplining you, okay? Not all pain is discipline. If you have ever been physically or emotionally abused by a parent or a man, if you're a woman, that is not God's discipline, okay? That's someone else's disease affecting you. That's someone else's sin that they did not take care of affecting you, or if you, like me, have suffered the loss of a child, or maybe you've suffered a loss of a spouse, or you have been enduring a chronic illness, or maybe you have a family member who is bound by addiction, 
that is not God disciplining you, okay? That's not God's discipline. That is, we live in a sinful world, and until we are free from it, we will unfortunately have to undergo some of this stuff. And we will suffer because innocent people suffer with sin. But in every difficult circumstance, it's an opportunity to trust God, right? And build your faith and, and trust that his word where he says that he will work everything for our good, that, that we, we will stand in in faith that that will be true in our lives, okay? So, so it's, it's not that there's no hope. We just have to trust that the Lord is going to use that for our good. Okay, so in summary, discipline is this. It feels like pain. It happens because you're doing something wrong, okay? You're, you are in Christ, but you're not producing fruit. It causes you to feel guilty and sad, maybe also anxious, depressed, frustrated, or distressed. It requires you to repent, and it will stop when you stop sinning. Okay, that's discipline. Now, the final reason you might not be producing fruit, we're going to go back to that, the reasons you, that you weren't producing fruit, is that you have not been properly pruned. You've either been pruned too much, or you've been pruned too little, or you've been pruned in the wrong places. And improper pruning, just FYI, is not the fault of the vine dresser. Okay, the vine dresser prunes perfectly. The, the pruning usually happens incorrectly when we're trying to prune ourselves or we're getting pruned by someone who has no business with a pair of shears. Have you ever, have you ever seen a little kid who tries to cut their own hair? Yeah, improper pruning. <laughs> but if you are in a season where you're not producing any fruit, ask God, why? Why am I not producing any fruit? And trust me, remember, the father's, father's the vine dresser, his main job is what? to get you to bear fruit. So if you come to the Father and you say, Father, please tell me why I'm not bearing fruit, I promise you he will tell you. He wants you to know, okay? Because coaxing that branch to produce fruit is his job. Okay, let's talk about a branch in Christ that bears fruit. John 15, 2. Every branch that does bear fruit he prunes it so that it will be even more fruitful, okay? So when you start bearing fruit, and you're like, yay, I got fruit. What does he do? He prunes it. <laughs> you can't catch a break. <laughs> There's cutting anyway. Okay, so what does it mean that he prunes us? Well, pruning in a very literal sense with grapevines means to thin or to reduce or to cut off. So outside of harvesting itself, this is the single most important task for ensuring a plentiful harvest is the pruning. The vine dresser's main objective is to get as much fruit as possible, and so he will cut back anything unnecessary, shoots, leaves, other vegetative parts, including fruit. No matter how vigorous, no matter how beautiful and lush the plant is, if it means more fruit in the long run, he will cut it off. So I brought with me some pruning shears. I stole them all from my garage. Here's, aren't they pretty? These, I think, have been used recently. I think my husband was doing some yard work. Okay. What do these all have in common? Sharp. Good. You're so, you are sharp. You are sharp. Yes, sharp things cut, and cutting hurts. <laughs> Can you scratch that? Okay, my assistant. She's gonna, she didn't know she was my assistant until right this very moment. So sometimes pain means discipline, and sometimes pain is just unjust suffering, and sometimes pain is pruning, okay? So sometimes if you're feeling pain, it's because you're pruning. Here are some various ways that the vine dresser will prune a grapevine. First, he will cut back aggressive growth. So a, a grapevine's tendency, what, once it's up there, is to grow very, very aggressively and vigorously. And, and the grapevine actually prefers more growth and lush green over fruit. Its natural tendency is to want all that lush greenness. So to get more from the grapevine, guess what? The vine dresser needs to go against the tendency of the grapevine 
which means a lot of wood needs to be cut each year. And so there's a couple different pruning techniques that I read about in my, you know, fun, fun facts with Sandy about grapevines. Um, they will pinch with the thumb and the finger to remove the growing tip of a vigorous shoot so that it won't go to, grow too rapidly and be broken off later by a gust of wind. The second pruning technique is they might top off, like, they might take like two or three feet off the top of a, of a growing shoot to prevent a later loss of the entire shoot in a gust of wind. Now, I got to understand a little bit about that um, firsthand. Last spring, John and I uh, started our first, well, our second, actually, but first successful raised vegetable garden. And so one of the things we grew was lettuce. And I had never grown lettuce before, but it came at a really good time um, because uh, we had just started kind of going toward a plant-based diet, which was fun and still am kind of on that. And um, it was a big trial and error process, mostly error. And so I decided um, that uh, basically I would, because we were growing all this lettuce, that I would eat big giant salads every single day. And so every morning I would go out into my garden with my bucket and, and I'd harvest my lunch and my dinner. I was Laura Ingalls. It was so awesome. And, and one day, I went out to gather, gather my harvest. And, um, and I saw one of my lettuce plants had shot up like two feet. And it had flowers on it. I was, at first, I was like, what is, like, is that a weed? Like, what happened? And then I, I examined the leaves very carefully because that's what Laura Ingalls would do, of course. And so I looked, and I'm like, no, those look just like the lettuce leaves. And so I just proceeded to harvest my, my lunch from that vigorously growing plant. And I was like, cool, it's got flowers, and it's huge, and yeah, John, we did it. High five. And, um, and so that day, I used all of those greens in a smoothie. And I stuck them all in there with my fruit and my water and... And, and I take a big, giant swig of this smoothie, and I'm like, ah! and I spit the entire thing out. It was awful. It was so bitter. Because then I looked on the internet, handy-dandy internet, and I found out in all of my research that what had happened to that plant was called bolting. And um, it was the aggressive growth of a lettuce plant, and it makes the leaves inedible. Interesting. It was so pretty, though. It had flowers and everything. So back to the grapevines. A very similar thing happens with us, okay? So when, when, when we want, I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I want to go a little bit faster than what God is telling me to do, okay? And, and, and so sometimes he needs to cut back that aggressive growth because, you know what, if he leaves it, it's going to produce some really bitter fruit. So what will that look like? Maybe, maybe the, the size of your ministry is growing before you have the characters to sustain it. Or maybe you desire a leadership position, but your character of you know, being able to lead people with grace and love and patience and to speak encouragement into people, it's not there yet. He's still working in you. And so you know what? He might just need to lob that thing off. And you're like, but, but it was so pretty and it had flowers and leaves and my leaves looked just like her leaves and Laura Ingalls wanted to eat me. And, and, you know, but he's trying to save you. When that gust of wind comes and knocks the whole thing down, he's trying to save you. So let him do that, okay? The third pruning technique, thinning the removal of flower clusters and grape clusters or part of a cluster to enable the rest of the branch to bear more or better quality fruit. Okay, we're going to talk more about this one in our last session when we talk about the fruit bearing, so we're going to skip past that. The fourth pruning technique, thinning leaves that are blocking the fruit from the sun. Leaves can become so dense on a plant that the sun can't reach the actual area where the fruit is coming. And so the sun is necessary for proper growth. It, it has to shine on the fruit. The fruit needs to see it. So if, if you're like going all nutso, producing all your foliage, and you're covering up all your fruit, sometimes from a distance, you look very impressive. But you, your fruit is like horrible. 
it, it, it can't grow. So vine dressers will often first, before they start lobbing off your leaves, the vine dresser will first try to redirect the leaves, okay? And, and try to tie them back in the trellis. So, you know, sometimes God might just be like, whoa, 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 before he starts lobbing off all your leaves. But if the grapes are still blocked, then he starts to prune back the remaining vines so that the fruit can receive the sun. Vigorous growth of this sort tends to lead to disorderly growing habits and shading, and shading is absolutely detrimental to fruit. It rots it, and it causes it to become unripe, and it's completely unharvestable. So we learned um, about this also in our adventures in gardening last year. When we planted our zucchini plants, which I had never planted before, in the same garden bed as our carrots and our cucumbers. Exactly. Oh, dear me is exactly right. That is precisely. Only because I found this on the yes. Well, it's a lot of trial and error, isn't it? Yes. And so zucchini leaves, if you have never grown a zucchini, are like this big. They're like giant. They're so big. I was like, what is growing? <laughs> okay. So they towered over our cucumber plants so much so that I didn't even realize we had cucumber plants in there until the cucumber plants were so overgrown, they were like, I, they were like this big. And, you know, you can't eat that. You can't eat that. And then our carrots, also in the same flower bed, I was very excited about the carrots and very sad when John harvested them. And I, I'm not kidding you. I wish we would have taken a picture of them. They were, the, they, they were like this long, they were about that thick, and they were bendy. <laughs> and I was like, this is terrible. So God wants us to not do that in our grapevines, right? So what might overgrowth in us look like? Things that keep us super busy but have no eternal value. Tasks and commitments that consume our time but they are not actual fruit-producing commitments that God has called us to do. It might look awesome from the outside, like, wow, look at her full and lush life. She is awesome. But is that something God has called you to do? If not, he's going to cut it off. It, it, and it, it's going to be very individual to you. Like, you can't look at her branch and be like, but she gets to keep that leaf. Why can't I keep that leaf? And you can't look at her branch either and say, well, she got hers all cut off, so I got to get rid of mine too, okay? God, God deals with each branch very individually. So does the vine dresser. He, he doesn't just decide, I'm going to cut off every fifth leaf on every branch, or I'm going to cut them each to five inches long. No, he goes to each one, and he looks at the placement of the leaves and how much they're pr growing, producing, and the... the quality of the fruit. He's looking at each thing individually and tending it individually. That is what he will do for you as well. Remember, God's purpose in the pruning back aggressive growth is to cut away immature commitments and lesser priorities so that things that block the sun slash sun will make room for an abundant harvest of ripe and sweet fruit. Okay, the second way, I know it's not yet, Yes. The second way a vine dresser prunes a grapevine is by cutting off dead and dying leaves on the branches. Now, this type of pruning involves completely cutting off dead and dying branches that suck the nutrients and energy out of the branch that needs to actually be for the fruit. So what might that look like in your life? Well, maybe you are in a life-sucking relationship. Maybe you have a habit or activity that has absolutely no eternal value and it sucks the life out of you. What is depleting you? What weighs you down spiritually? That, those are dead and dying leaves in your life. Maybe, maybe it's an attitude or an, opi an opinion that you have toward a person or a circumstance and, and God's asking you to surrender that thing to him. The energy that you put toward that dead thing, it, it's, it's sucking it from the fruit that God's trying to produce in you. And so he cuts away that aggressive growth and he cuts away the dead and dying leaves. And finally, he prunes away the suckers. So more grapevine trivia for you. The best and most fruit-producing grapevines have only one main shoot. Other shoots will try to grow from that main shoot 
and those are called suckers. But the vine dresser, I know, we're going to say it so many times because everyone's like, she just said suckers. Yes, she did. She's going to say it five more times. The vine dresser will cut them off so they don't absorb the nutrients necessary for the grapes on the healthy vine. <laughs> I have such a bad joke to put here, and I don't, you guys are so quiet, I can't do it. Okay, also, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and sometimes I wonder if when the father does this, he says, see you later, suckers. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. I'm here all week, thank you. Okay. Okay, so also sometimes more, <laughs> sorry, you guys are like, some of you are giving me like a complete, like deadpan look, I know. Okay. Also, sometimes more than one shoot comes up from the roots, okay? And, and when that happens, the vine dresser will only keep one. And guess what, when he keeps the one, guess what it's called? In grape terminology, it's called the true vine. Yeah. It's called the true vine. Isn't that cool? So when Jesus called himself the true vine, he was quite literally saying, I don't want to compete. Yeah. I don't want to compete, compete. Like whatever you're rooted in, like I'm not competing with that. What might that look like? It might look like money, possessions, success, security, relationships, like whatever competes. For Jesus in your life needs to go. That, that sucker needs to cut, be cut back. Literally, that sucker needs to be cut back. <laughs> so cutting back aggressive growth, thinning and cutting back dead and dying branches and leaves, cutting back suckers and shoots coming up from the roots, all of that happens during the growing season. But then there's another pruning that happens in the dormant season. And cutting back during the dormant season, this is extremely aggressive. In the autumn or winter, outside of growing season, the vine dresser or the gardener will cut back the vines so very severely, leaving only the main stock and perhaps two mature branches. That's it. And he has carefully trained these two branches to incline along a trellis or the fence or whatever he tied it to to keep it there. And now he leaves them until spring where they are positioned. They're positioned for growth. Proper pruning during the dormant winter season means removing 80 to 90% of the previous year's growth. 80 to 90% of your growth. Think about that in your life. That's huge. Think about what that feels like in your life when you are in a dormant season and the Father has cut back 80 to 90% of what you had produced. It feels like there's something wrong. There's nothing wrong. He has positioned you for growth next year. You are positioned. You're positioned. One final thought on pruning. Different varieties require different pruning techniques. Okay, some, some hybrid varieties, they're, they're, they're kind of like genetically modified to not need to, a lot of pruning, while others need the full 90%. Okay, you can't look around and be like, why am I always the one getting pruned? Like, I, I totally have been that person. I have felt like, I, I felt like my 40s were pretty much like my pruning season. I thought, dear Lord, for real, like just cutting back and cutting back and cutting back and cutting back. And I'm looking around at everybody else and she's doing this and he's doing this and everybody just seems to be like aggressively pursuing the fruit. And, and I, I was getting nothing but pruning. It's a very individualized process, okay? You can't do that. God isn't going to, it doesn't even matter what's happening over on that, that branch. It doesn't matter. Just submit to what he tells you to do. So in summary, pruning is this. It feels like pain. Ouch. It feels like pain. But it happens not because you're doing something wrong. It's happening because you are doing something right. You are in Christ 
and you are producing fruit. It causes you to feel uncomfortable, but trusting of God's work in your life. You, it's uncomfortable, but it doesn't feel like a rebuke. It feels like God doing something. Like you know this is a God thing when you're in Christ. And it hurts, but it's, it's, it's a good hurt. It requires you not to repent, but to submit. Just submit to the pruning process. That's your job. Just there, getting all tied up, just waiting. Just waiting for your season, waiting for spring. Just let it happen. Let him have full access. He needs to get all up in your business. He needs to move your leaves around. He needs you to reposition. Like, God, just let him do it. Like, just let him do it. And it stops when God's finished. <laughs> and when he's satisfied with your fruit production, that's when that pruning stops. So pruning is God's part. And abiding is our part. And fruit is the natural growth from the abiding vine that is properly and regularly pruned. And we're going to say that so many times over the next three weeks. The pruning is God's part. Abiding is my part. And fruit is the natural growth from the abiding vine that is properly and regularly pruned. 